the Raising the Bar podcast, brought to you by the Association of Gray's Inn Students. Hello and welcome to the Raising the Bar podcast. I am Nia Marshall and today we are lucky to be joined by Alana Hughes. She's a pupil barrister in her second six at a specialist family law set in London. She's also a Gray's Inn residential scholar and recipient of the Shakespeare Memorial Award. Alana was the person who conceptualized and initiated the creation of the Raising the Bar podcast. She's also the podcast host for our series, Meet the Barrister. So Alana, how does it feel to be on the other side of the mic today? Much more nerve-wracking than I thought. I think I will definitely appreciate uh, how nervous my guests must be when they come on. (laughs) I could completely understand that. Now, today we're actually talking about the inside scoop on pupillage. Now, as you know, Alana, many aspiring barristers or persons who um, have been called to the bar or have received pupillage attend many webinars or many sessions on pupillage. But I think there is kind of a, a gap of insider knowledge on that inside scoop on pupillage. What can we expect? So let's start there because that's what today's podcast is going to be. So we'll start from the very beginning. Let's talk about the transition from student life to pupillage. So before beginning as a pupil barrister, what expectations did you have about the role? Well, first of all, if if I just start with what, what you've um, sort of couched as the transition from student life to pupillage. I think that's a really important um, transition that, that people go through. I would say that I sort of had a taste of working life prior to pupillage because during the sort of intermediate year between bar school and beginning pupillage, I worked as a paralegal and then I worked for an NGO. And I think that introduced me to the concept of you know, not necessarily having as much freedom with your time as you would when you're a student and also not having summer holidays, which has been hard to transition to, not having sort of a set time off at Christmas to spend with your family or or at certain times of the year and having to go off of this sort of, you know, 25 days annual leave and, and bank holidays. That's just not part of student life at all. And I think it's certainly something that I struggled with at the in the beginning because, you do really miss the freedom that you have as a student and you also miss all of the good times that you're able to have as a student because you can very much go to the library all day and study and then it's very much the case that people will head to the pub or uh, to a sports club or do something fun in the evenings and that's not something necessarily that you can continue through into working life as easily. So I would say to anyone who is currently a student and listening to this podcast definitely make the most of the time that you have left because there certainly is a period of transition that you have to go through and there are elements of work in life that mean you will certainly miss many aspects of being a student but to then move on to what you ask then in terms of the expectations that I had about pupillage I think my very first expectation was that I wasn't going to complete pupillage in my bedroom So I've effectively missed out on all of the social aspects of pupillage, which I think are really, really important. Meeting and getting to know your clerks, the other barristers in your set, your co-pupil and and the importance of that relationship. I have been fortunate enough to be in person a few times. And so I've met my first two supervisors in person. I've yet to meet my third, 
But I suppose I did meet her when I interviewed for the pupillage. So I wonder if that counts. And um, I've also met up with my co-people and there have been times throughout the year whenever the COVID regulations have been varied and relaxed and I've been able to meet up with a few different other people outdoors and, and the likes, which has been wonderful. But normally you'd be in chambers after court pretty much every day and you'd be popping your head around the door to ask questions or see what people's opinion is about this really, you know, niche issue that you've just come across. And that just hasn't happened for me. And so I think when I realised that my pupillage was, was going to be almost 100% remote, which is what it has been, I think I realised that probably very shortly into my pupillage when I began at the end of September, all of the expectations that I had about things like getting up super early in the morning to get on a train to God knows where halfway across the country at at 5am or getting home in the evening and... Um, you know, the Martha Costello style kick off of the heels and pouring yourself a glass of wine to wind down from the day. None of that has happened. It's been very, very different. And so I think my expectations and the reality in terms of those aspects have been, you know, very divergent. But in terms of the aspects that and the expectations that I had that have played out, obviously, I expected the late nights. I expected to have to work weekends. I expected to feel stressed and uh, a little or maybe a lot uh, overwhelmed at times. And I think I was correct to expect those things. And they've certainly been a feature of my pupillage. I know that from a well-being perspective, late nights and weekends are not ideal. But I have realised, I suppose I don't necessarily view this as a particularly negative thing but I know that some people will and that is to be taken into consideration when you're thinking about whether or not this career is for you but I have realized that if you want a busy and full court diary especially as a family law practitioner or as a criminal law barrister that's the reality you're you're going to have urgency in everything that you do and it's almost as if every single brief and instruction that I get every bundle that I receive or every client I need to speak to the sense of urgency and everything is just palpable and you can't escape that. So I think that's an expectation that I had uh, that has certainly borne out as the months have gone on. So it really does sound as though um, some of your expectations were met, but with the, I guess, the, the era that we're in in terms of the pandemic, um, some of them were shattered in terms of working from from your bedroom, as you stated. Now, before we we continue into your journey as, as a pupil, I just wanted you to highlight, um, if possible, if there are any more key differences between student life and becoming a pupil. Now, I know you, I appreciate, sorry, that, that you spoke about us having um, summer holidays and spending lengthy times in the library. Do you think that there are any other uh, major differences that you did experience there? I think one of the, the biggest things that you have to come to terms with is that the decisions that you make, the tasks you complete and the advice that you give, it, it has consequences and it doesn't necessarily have consequences when you're a student and you're theorising on a, in a paper about whatever sort of you know legal concept you're, you're researching at the time. I think learning about law and learning about family law on paper is very, very different from being the person in the driving seat giving the legal advice to the the person that's potentially going to have their children removed from their care 
within the next few hours. And there is a, a large element of growing up and growing up very quickly to learn that the real world is sometimes very different from the hypothetical world that we study and that we we research. I think, don't get me wrong, you get the grounding that you need in law and the legal concepts in order to be a lawyer, but there is an enormous shift when it actually comes to doing the job uh, instead of just learning about how you might. That's a very interesting point, Alana. Now, given that we're talking about this shift of mentality that's that's required, we do know that as students, some of us don't take the ultimate responsibility for, for a piece of work that, that we do have to hand in because we do uh, know that we are in the safe hands of correction. Now, it's, it's a valid point and very important that when we do transition uh, in, into being a barrister, uh, the ultimate responsibility is yours. So what adjustments do you think students have to make? What practical tips do you think that we can make to make that smooth transition? I think I spent a long time, or rather a lot of time in my first six, simply observing people. And one thing that I've noticed about the very good barristers that I've either shadowed and observed or that have been on acting for the other side in a case is just the the sheer professionalism with which they conduct themselves. I think the ethical code that we're bound by is very important. Our core duties are, are, are enormously important. And again, we learn about those on the bar course, but it's not until you get onto your feet and to, to an extent you, you are aware of them in your first six, but much more so in your second six. It's not until you get on your feet that you realise that they come into the decisions and the analysis that you undertake every single day. So I think working towards professionalism is something that I'm trying to do all the time. I'm trying to learn how to better professionally conduct myself. I'm picking up tips from other barristers in terms of email tone and how to professionally represent yourself and your client over email. You've got to learn how to talk to people on the phone. Obviously, with remote hearings, we're then on video calls. You're talking to a professional client, the solicitor, a lay client, your your client, the judge, the court clerk, your own clerk, other colleagues in chambers. And you've got to talk to all of those different people in different ways because they're very different relationships. And so you're essentially putting on and taking off a lot of different hats when you're having these conversations. And I don't think there's really any practical tips to help with that adjustment because it, it's simply something that you go through and it's a it's a process that you undertake over a period of time. And you've just got to be sort of aware of the need to uphold the best examples of professionalism that you possibly can at all times. And that means learning from other people who are miles and miles ahead of you, who have been there, done that, and and can set a really good example. Okay. Now, I know you you spoke about uh, undertaking at least the first the first six from your bedroom, which is practically an anomaly, um, given that we expect pupillage to to take place in in chambers and face to face shadowing persons or shadowing your supervisor. So on that front, do you mind describing the first month as a pupil for us 
and outlining any difficulties that you had in terms of coping as a pupil during the pandemic? I think I was in a very bizarre situation where my first ever case that I was shadowing, my first ever day of pupillage was actually in person. And I woke up that day and put my suit on and got on the train and thought, this is how it's going to be for the next year. This is brilliant. And obviously then had the reality check that this was just a one-off. We were in court for three days, but I wouldn't be in court again until I think February. So initially in the very first couple of days, I was thinking, you know, this is exactly what I expected. I was on a train, must have been to either Reading or Oxford. Uh, I was getting up early, getting ready, getting myself packed and out the door. And then obviously the following week was extremely different. And as the weeks went on, it was very clear to me that this was how it was going to be. I was going to just be at home. I think I was in a spare room. I'm still in a, a spare, you know, spare room, the website that everybody uses in London to, to live somewhere unless obviously, of course, you're able to live on your own. So I was in a spare room and I obviously had my bedroom and I did really struggle with that. Obviously, a lot of the cases that you're dealing with in the area of law that I'm in, you're looking at things that have caused people immense amount of trauma in their lives. And I found that in the evenings when I stepped away from my laptop, all of those horrible things that I'd read about, all those horrible things that I maybe had to watch or hear people talk about and describe in detail when they were given evidence were sort of just hanging in the air in my bedroom. And I struggled with the fact that I didn't have another space to go to, to, to sort of escape that. So about five months into my pupillage, I decided that I would have a look on spare room and see if there was any other options, even just a bigger room to allow me to sort of divide the space up. And I happened to come across a room available that had a study uh, downstairs. So it's a, a duplex flat and it has a study downstairs and the study was attached to this room, which was just an absolute godsend because that has meant that throughout my second six, I've been able to divide up my living space and my working space. But I am very aware that that is a super fortunate position and lots and lots of people haven't had the opportunity or ability to do that. And I think having the pressure and stress of pupillage on the one hand and then on the other hand having the nature of the work that we do and you're juggling those two balls and then you add a third ball into the mix which is that you've got one space and you've got nowhere to escape it so I think that that must be extremely difficult I, I certainly did find it very difficult myself for those few months um, and it has really helped to have a separate space for work because I think it's just enormously important to be able to switch off in, in any way that you can. Yeah, I think this is a complaint or a grievance that we heard time and time again. Uh, we struggle to divide our recreational space or what would have been our recreational space from our working space. So it seems like everywhere you turn, you see your work staring in front of you and you wonder to yourself, However, am I going to switch off? So I'm really happy that you were able to, uh, five months in, find a way to divide that space. Now, it, it seems as though, um, although you haven't been at court uh, very often, if it is applicable, would you be able to draw a comparison between attending court remotely and attending in person and outline any adjustments you made 
I've I've been to court in person a few times during my first six, and then I've been to court once on my own on my fate for a two day fact find. I find the experience of going to court physically for the first time worse than the first day that I was ever remotely on my fate. I don't know why that was. I can only su- surmise that it must have been something to do with actually physically going there and not being able to hide behind a screen w- w- if if things were to go wrong. I have to say I really enjoyed it. I find it a lot easier to cross-examine in person than I do to cross-examine remotely. I think it was very strange to be able to read people's body language and not just the very small square of facial expressions that we can sometimes get in remote hearings. I really enjoyed, enjoyed being in front of a judge in person. And overall, as much as the experience was very nerve-wracking at the beginning, I find it to be a much easier process. Things went smoother, things took less time. I could nip into the consultation room next door to mine, have a quick word with uh, counsel for the other side. I could go back and forth between my client and counsel for the other side in a matter of minutes. Whereas when you're remote, you're having to lift the phone to one person and then lift the phone to another. And that back and forth can take a lot more time than it does whenever you're physically there. So I think... A lot of I think a lot of people would probably agree with me that it is easier to conduct a case in person. But don't get me wrong, because remote hearings really do have their purpose and they have shown to be extremely effective in, in many situations. There are just certain situations like where you have a vulnerable client or where you have a client who doesn't necessarily have the access to the Internet or to a device that you would assume or you have complex evidence over multiple days it, it is much easier in those situations to be in person. And I think a lot of people are looking forward to getting back in person for those situations. But ultimately, it's very much hope that remote hearings will have their place for short directions hearings where evidence it doesn't need to be heard. And that will prevent barristers from having to travel, you know, the horror stories that you hear of three hours for the sake of a, a 10 minute hearing. So looking back and, and sort of weighing up the pros and cons of both. I think they both serve their purpose. And I think I have enjoyed both, but in very different ways. That's that's very good to hear. Um, it sounds as though it bodes well for the future as well, um, knowing that each of them serve their purpose. Now, I think we should talk a bit about the reality of being a, a pupil barrister. I think you're in a, a prime position to advise any aspiring barristers about the expectations that they should have about this role. So could you shed some light on that for us? I think the sort of old idea that pupils should be seen and not heard is certainly true in court, especially in your first six. You should definitely be, well, to be honest, when you're remote, you probably shouldn't be seen or heard. Your, Your camera should be off and your microphone should be off. But I think in in terms of the wider nature of pupillage, while that might have been true in the past and it it might still be true in certain sets, I have felt very valued and listened to in in my pupillage. I felt that my opinion on things has been asked for. I felt that it's been taken seriously and it's been taken into consideration. And I mean, don't get me wrong, when I was in first six, 
I very much operated a, a speak when spoken to policy. And I think you can't really go wrong if you stick to that policy, particularly if you are remote, because of course, if you're in person, it's much easier to have sort of those natural conversations with the other barristers on the case or with the children's guardian or the social workers if you're for the local authority. But if you're all on a team's call, you know, I don't know to what extent this opinion would be would be shared by others. But I, I really do think that the pupil should be the last person to sort of strike up a conversation and, and chat between everyone. It's the pupil's role really to observe and watch, especially in, in first six. My supervisors always introduced me to people on screen and said, you know, this is Lana Hughes, she's my pupil. And that got my face known to solicitors and to other barristers, which was really excellent. And then, of course, you're always introduced in court because even if you're not participating in the hearing, you are attending it and you're present. I I have a my chambers has a as a has a special sort of virtual chambers tea, tea every week it's an alternative to what would have been in person chambers tea every week and that takes place by zoom um on a thursday evening and i i really enjoy going to that and i don't feel in any way that i'm i'm not able to to chat and discuss things very naturally and openly and i think that's that's really wonderful i don't know to what extent that is unique to my chambers and whether other chambers are different but my chambers has certainly involved myself and my co-pupil immensely in in chambers life and we've been very encouraged to lift the phone to anyone when we've needed to but i do think that to a large extent you you need to know the place of a pupil and you are there to learn and you are there to observe. You're to do the tasks that other people may not want to do and you're very much there to start from the bottom and, and work your way up. And I think one thing that helped me a lot was to think that every single person has done it. There is no barrister that hasn't done pupillage. And so if they can get through it, then I can get through it and 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 be better for it by the time I get to the end. I think if you begin pupillage thinking that you're already a fully fledged barrister because you've got your wig and you've got your gown and you were called like two years ago, then you're in for a bit of a reality check because that couldn't really be further from the truth. I think I've discussed it a little bit already, but, you know, the bar course really does provide you with the legal grounding and the procedure and the rules of advocacy and the rules of the court. But nothing prepares you for actually being a barrister like pupillage. And I think the whole experience is just one gigantic learning curve. And so you need to be very ready for it and realise that you're starting from the very, very bottom of the mountain. And there's obviously that tenancy offer at the top that you're trying to get to. I think it is quite comforting to be having tea or virtual tea, um, especially when experiencing a steep learning curve such as this one. So I could understand why you'd enjoy it because it, it just seems as though... Um, it's an expression that all lines of communication are practically open. Now, Alana, do you know of any myths or are there any myths or illusions about the role that you think should be shattered? I think, you know, what I've already discussed, people shouldn't should be seen and not heard. That's probably a myth that I would think should be shattered. Um, in terms of any other illusions about pupillage, I do think that the idea that some people might have that pupils are sort of these very badly treated, slightly glorified students is wrong. 
I feel, as I've I've already stated, really, really valued. And I think my chambers has has welcomed me in, in a way which makes me feel like they are very much preparing with a very optimistic and hopeful view to to set me up for for a great practice in, in the future. And you really are aware of the fact that you are the next generation. Hopefully, if everything goes well and you successfully complete your pupillage, you're the next generation of, of the young bar. And I think the bar is extremely nurturing in that sense. And I think if you look at the inn and the structure of the inn, as people move further up the ladder, they give more and more and more rope to help pull everybody else up behind them. And that's how the scholarships work. And that's how the bursaries and, you know, the residential scholarships. And that's how all of those things are funded, because the more that people succeed in this career, they more the more they give back to help others follow in their footsteps. And I think that's an absolutely wonderful thing. I also think that when you take into account just how much your pupil supervisor gives you, and how little they get back for it because they don't get paid to do it. If you're in person, they're normally buying your lunch or buying you a drink in the morning, a coffee or or whatever. So they're actually out of pocket for having you follow them around. They're imparting on you years and years of wisdom and experience that you can't really get anywhere else. And they're there to support you at the end of the phone when you need it. And that's their their job but also it's very much their vocation because they they do not have to do it and they offer themselves up for for the role so I think I've just felt extremely grateful the entire time for all of the opportunities that I've been given and all of the people who have spent you know even if it was just 15 minutes on the phone to me saying well if I were you this is how I'd do it because those little pockets of of learning and development are just instrumental and I think you know if ever I am to get to the end of my pupillage and be successful and if I am to go on and, and have a practice that I just I just can't wait to be able to be in that position to give back because I don't think it's ever going to be lost on me how, how much people have given to me in order for me to to come in to this career. That's a very uh, positive and lovely mindset to have. Now, just turning to the first six, could you describe to for us uh, the first six and the tasks that you were actually expected to complete? Lots of observing, lots of watching, listening, just taking a note of everything that's going on, producing very lengthy attendance notes that are probably way more detailed than they'll ever be whenever you're on your feet. I've certainly found that. I think one of the hearings that I observed way, way back, sort of at the beginning of my pupillage, my attendance note ran to something ridiculous, like 250 pages. It was like a, a two week fact find. And I took down every single word that everybody said, because I was just petrified of missing out or of getting something wrong. And I think when I sent it to my supervisor, it was very much like no one is going to have the time to read through 250 pages, Alana. And it was a very sort of maybe silly thing for me to have done back then. But I think you're, people talk about the pupillage paranoia, which is very real. And you're just so keen to try and please and impress and do things properly. So certainly taking attendance notes was the bulk of my first six. You learn how to draft. And I don't mean like bar school drafting, which is very different from 
family law bar drafting. I'll have draft orders that I'd never seen before. You're drafting position statements and case summaries. You're really trying to develop your written advocacy because it's it's as important, if not sometimes more important than your, your oral advocacy. And I think just lots of reading. You're reading around cases, you're reading bundles, you're thinking about the issues, you're trying to identify what the issues are accurately. And then you're maybe just having conversations with your supervisor to run over what you what you've read you know have a a very casual conversation well what did you think the issues are and sometimes you get you know that question thrown at you well what would you ask in cross-examination or well what submission would you make in relation to this point and that can be really particularly terrifying because you're thinking uh either you've got no idea or you're terrified to get it wrong but I think that pretty much summarizes what verse six is it's it's just a lot of of learning in a very short space of time and I don't think during first six you're quite aware of just how much you're learning it's not until you get to second six and all of a sudden this submission starts to come out of your mouth and you're not you're not really sure that you formulated it but you you figure that you must have picked it up through osmosis about six months ago and it's just it's just stuck in your head so I don't think that you you grasp the importance of of that period of training until you have to put it into practice necessarily. Now, you started to touch a little bit on the second six and making submissions. Would you say that the tasks were completely different uh, during the second six? What were you expected to do then? Absolutely different. I mean, it was, you know, very much sort of from from black to white, from from white to black. The contrast was very different and the transition was was quite immediate and stark actually but I think I speak probably only for the family bar and 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 maybe the criminal bar in this sense because obviously we have extremely busy court diaries when you're in on first six you're not running any of your own cases and then all of a sudden as as you start to get towards the end of your first six you can see that your own diary is filling up in the coming weeks and then you start getting your own instructions your own briefs are coming in and you've got to start to juggle your own diary and that means speaking to clients directly it means taking instructions directly giving advice directly and then it means standing up in court and representing them which of course is a brand new task that you would never do uh, in first six so I think they certainly are very very different experiences and the, the the second six mark in your pupillage marks the beginning of of a different chapter now, I know it seems as though it's it's pivotal that you do pay attention and observe because, um, as you said, <laughs> we hope then that that kind of goes through via osmosis <laughs> um, into the second six. But how else would you say would provide for a, a smooth transition from the first six to then being on your feet? Do you know what? I've thought about this and I, I've thought about it looking back in hindsight and obviously I'm I'm really sort of still quite fresh on my feet I've only been on my feet for for three or so months but I genuinely don't know if there is anything that you can do to prepare the first day that I had my own case I just remember physically shaking I was sitting in a chair and I couldn't stop my legs from moving I was so nervous and I'm not sure that there's anything that I could have done to prepare for that you know I I, I did advocacy at bar school, I mooted at university, I did the pupilage advocacy, the pupilage advocacy course with Greys, 
I, I practiced as much as I could, as much as I should have, and yet I was still ferociously nervous. And that that level of nerves continued well into my first few hearings. And looking back, you know, you think, God, what could I have done to, to prepare myself better? But I'm not sure that there is anything because there is nothing quite like that first experience that you have of standing up and addressing a court. And I think it's it's it only makes sense that there's nothing that you can do to prepare for it, given how unique an experience it is. So I would say instead of maybe coming to the end of your first six, trying to focus on what you can do to prepare for a smooth transition into your second, you would maybe just be better trying to prepare for the practical things like your 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 diary management and I mean I personally have started to use a spreadsheet that I've created just to manage myself because one thing that I didn't really prepare for was just sort of the amount of work that there is behind that goes on behind the scenes it's not just standing up in court for half an hour and delivering submissions or representing your client you've got to make sure that you have all the papers you've got to make sure that you read them you've got to draft your position statement then you've got to take instructions from your client and confirm that the instructions you've put into your position statement are correct you've got to go to court and represent the client then you've got to draft the order normally if you're for the applicant or if you're against a litigant in person, which I very often am. Then once you draft the order, you've got to get it agreed, if possible, with the other side. You've got to get it approved by your client, perhaps even maybe by your professional client. Then you've got to send that off to the judge and await for it to be returned to you approved. Then you've got to draft your attendance note and then you've got to bill the whole case with with your with your clerks. So I think without my spreadsheet that lets me keep track on every single case you know if I'm doing four or five six cases a week that's very easy to lose track of what you have and what you haven't done because you simply can't remember so I think getting yourself prepared for that sort of thing practically get your spreadsheet ready get your columns all in the right order and and whatever else figure out a way that you're going to plan your week Sundays for me are a massive planning day I have only had one Sunday it was Father's Day where I wasn't able obviously to work as much as I would like or as I normally would on a Sunday and I really did feel that through the week that I just hadn't got myself set up for the week as as I should have because it is just extremely easy to lose track and the cases are coming at you thick and fast and you need to try your best to to see ahead and and try to sort of plan as much as you can. That's a very handy tip, uh, Alana, and it, it really does show that uh, when we even unpack that core duty of, of providing a competent standard of service, that there's so many other things that needs to, to come into play there, including diary management. And I just want to take this time to pause and now ask you, <laughs> you've been doing all of this stuff. How did you manage and maintain your well-being? <laughs> uh I'm not sure how well I have done with this one um, and it's so it's so interesting to me because it's a question that I ask every single one of my guests when they come on the podcast. What do you do to switch off? What do you do for well-being? And now that I am trying to do the job, I have realised just how difficult the answer to that question is. Listen, pupillage is hard, hard work. I'm never going to be the person that sits here and says, you know, 20 minutes of yoga and an iced latte down the road with your friend for for (laughs) half an hour is going to wash away all the stresses that you feel. I think the unrelenting stress of pupillage is completely natural, given the fact that you feel as though you're 
undertaking a 12-month interview. You're being assessed constantly, all the time, by people who are of an extremely superior intelligence to you. And um, I have struggled to switch off. I think I probably have overworked a lot. I think a large extent of that perhaps comes from my own self-criticism and my sort of unrealistic desire to have things be perfect. I think as the weeks have gone on, I've realised that not every single document I produce will be free of even the smallest typo. The speed at which we have to work sort of sometimes demands that, you know, small mistakes are made and accepting that you're human and accepting that you're not a computer is, I think, the first step to probably acknowledging that these things happen and obviously unless it's a big massive detrimental error which of course is not something that you want to have happen they are to be expected and so you just have to take them on the chin as they come and 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 learn from them because if you didn't make mistakes then then you wouldn't learn and I think that's obviously a lot easier to say than do because when you make mistakes I for one you know very much beat myself up about them I'll overthink about them I'll I'll probably obsess over what other people think of me because of that mistake for far far longer than I should and that's something that I certainly need to work on and hopefully something that I will be able to work on and get better at the more confident that I get in this job the more experienced that I become and uh, the more situations that I've been in where I've had the opportunity to learn so that I, I, I don't I don't make a mistake or I don't make a similar mistake again but I think it has been it has been very mixed you know I've had good days and bad days like everybody I've had days where I've you know woke up feeling like yep I know what I'm doing this is this this and this are my arguments you know watertight this is going to be great and then I've got other days where I finish the day and I think have I stepped into a profession that just isn't for me and I think that extreme is sometimes quite exhausting but I think it's totally normal and I think we should normalise it. I think everyone feels this way or at least a large amount of people feel this way. And obviously with being remote, it's been harder to have shared experiences. You know, the pupillage advocacy course was completely remote. We didn't get to share the experiences that we would normally have had with each other over a glass of wine at the end of the assessments, for example. But you've got to put your rational hat on and think, you know, if I'm struggling in my bedroom because I'm remote, then you've got to remember that every pupil that's remote is in the exact same boat. And I think every day you just try to be less self-critical of yourself and to remember that you are, I mean, I'm saying you, but it's, it's I'm speaking in the third person, but it's very much, you know, this is the, the, the prep talks that I give myself. And it's very much that you are at the beginning of a long road, which is, the road to try and become a successful and competent and experienced barrister and this is a very complicated and complex profession and it's not easy to be to be a barrister and if it was everyone would do it and so you've just got to give yourself a bit of slack I think and be proud of the achievements that you have made and how far you have come and think about all the good things and focus on those instead of uh, obsessing or overthinking about the negatives you know what Alana it, it's abundantly clear that this journey uh, pupillage is arduous it's, it's tiring and 
I think it's it's evident that pupil barristers need as, as much support as they can obtain. Now, what is abundantly clear, Alana, is that this pupillage journey is is arduous, it's, it's difficult, and and pupil barristers definitely do need support. And it's good um, that you can obviously get some support from the inn. So what kind of support does the inn offer during the pupillage year? I think my answer to this question is going to be very unfortunately limited because of the impact of COVID and the restrictions that have been implemented because of the pandemic have meant that the inn hasn't necessarily had the ability to provide pupils with what they normally would, which is, you know, that safe space of the inn at all times and in the library or in Bridge Bar, or even just sort of the events that people normally look forward to on the calendar, like the mixed messes and grand night and and guest night and all the rest. So having missed out on all of those for the year, it has been, it has been tough for pupils, I think, who would ordinarily be around in chambers, ordinarily around Chancery Lane area and popping in and out of the inn as and when. And of course, for a lot of people, the inn represents that element of the the legal home and where you remember and where you belong and the grandeur of it all is great motivation and great encouragement to keep going. And I certainly find that when I lived there, that, you know, every day was just sort of this Harry Potter world where where everything was just amazing. And that certainly was something that I find to be a great source of, of motivation. The Inn has provided online as much, I think, as they possibly could have done. There's been wellbeing sessions. I know that there's been library sessions for refreshing research skills. I know that the Inn have a pupillage mentor scheme. They also have a mentor scheme that they implement much earlier on in your career, which is when I got involved back when I was on BPTC. And I'm still in touch with my mentor from that day. So I didn't personally sign up to the pupillage mentor scheme because I already had a mentor and um and I just I thought it would be much better to give other people the opportunity to also have a mentor because it is really important and an excellent source of knowledge and and guidance to have behind you. In terms of financial support the in provide the Anne Goddard pupillage scholarships and also the senior scholarships for pupils and those are enormous amounts of money uh, enormous amounts of financial assistance for pupils who either need it in in the case of the Anne Goddard scholarships I think that's a merits-based calculation or in the senior scholarships it's I think it's more merit and who have done exceptionally well at bar school and have really sort of exceeded um, expectations and uh, done exceptionally well academically. So I think those scholarships are there to continue to support people in the same way that the Inn does when they're handing out GDL scholarships or bar school scholarships. And the impact of those and the importance of those for the recipients, I don't think can be underestimated because pupillage can be a very financially difficult time for people. And I think things have too many ex- Dent been made slightly easier this year because we don't necessarily have the travel expenses that we ordinarily would with a commute. But on the flip side of that, you know, because I am working from home all the time, I find myself paying much more in rent than I would have liked to have done. 
And ordinarily, you're you're paying for a room that during pupillage you're hardly ever in because you're always in chambers or you're always in court or on a train to or from either or. Whereas because I'm here all the time, I've I've had to put my money into a different place. And I think the inn have really recognised that with continuing the scholarship scheme through the pandemic. And I think they fully acknowledge the difficulties that people face. That's that's great that uh, we continue to have a, a very supportive inn, especially at such a critical stage. Now, Alana, I know you would have mentioned the pupillage advocacy course. Can you describe um, that course, outlining what modules uh, future pupils can expect to undertake? The advocacy course started off back in November with a wellbeing session about well-being at the bar and I think at that stage a lot of us were just very 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 new into pupillage so we eased into the course that way and then we progressed on to case preparation and that involved preparing a case what from what would be the very beginning looking at very preliminary documents preparing position statements preparing skeleton arguments rather as they're called as part of the course position statements I think is a term limited mostly to family law. The modules were employment and then civil. There was an element of of family law in the middle, but I understand that there wasn't either the numbers to sort of have a final assessment in family law or else an assessment hadn't been written up that was for family law pupils. But I do understand that that is intended to be sort of followed through within the next few years and so hopefully those coming up over the course of the next few years will have the benefit of a a, a wider variety of of specialisms to be assessed in so obviously because I was family I chose then to be assessed in civil it's it's closer to family than than criminal would be and you just work your way through about I think about 17 sessions in total over the course of about three or four months and at the very end it builds up to a final assessment day and that final assessment day would ordinarily have taken place in the Royal Courts of Justice in London but because of Covid it took place on Zoom and whilst that was obviously disappointing to a large extent because how great would it have been to stand up in the Royal Courts of Justice I had the opportunity to do that when I was at bar school on the the inns advocacy course at that time and so I had already been there. I, I couldn't I couldn't complain. I'd already had that opportunity. And I think a lot of people in my cohort were in the same boat. But the inn did as best they could to ensure that we had a similar experience that day. And one thing I would point out about the pupil advocacy course is just the level of expertise of the mentors and of the trainers and of the people who volunteer as judges. I think m- most, if not all, of the people who volunteer as judges are actual judges. And certainly the trainers and mentors are ordinarily QCs or extremely successful and experienced juniors. And I learned a lot in terms of practical tips from them. What tips can you share regarding passing these modules? I think the most important thing to do is to plan ahead, uh, to make sure that you communicate with your pupil supervisor, to make sure that you make them aware of what you've got to do and when and what the expectations are. A lot of the sessions take place midweek in the evening, so you need to ensure that your supervisor knows that so that they're not placing an unexpected or unrealistic weight of extra work on your shoulders just before you head off to do an assessment. So I think pre-planning and communication are, are key, really, and I don't think for one second that you should be 
hesitant to speak to your supervisor about it. It's it's in your interests and very much in Chamber's interests that you pass this course. I believe you have to pass this course in order to progress on to second six. And so, yeah, that's my advice. Just be open and honest and plan yourself and plan your, your week so that you can get the work done. It's not largely different from what you'll already have done in bar school. I don't think it's anything particularly to be worried about in terms of complexity or or anything new that you've never come across before it just requires you to put in the work and it just requires you to show up and and give your best effort and to show up at each session and and implement the the feedback that you've been given before as you develop through given that the training is mandatory how many sessions do people have to attend seven so the training is mandatory but some of the sessions are optional most of them are mandatory. So I think seven sessions in total were mandatory and compulsory for us to attend over the course of a few months. And some of those sessions were maybe three or four hours in length. So it is quite a, it is quite a time commitment. And um, it certainly, it certainly does feel like a time commitment at the time, because you're obviously very, very busy trying to do all of your pupillage tasks um, aside from this course. But you do realize how how important it is and you do realize that as as the weeks and months roll on you're you're very much getting somewhere and you're getting more competent towards your final assessment and alana do you think that the training made you more equipped for your second six i do because i think the deadlines that are set by the training um by those at the end who organize the training so for example you've got your skeleton argument deadlines you get sent the papers you might not get sent them with lots and lots of notice you might have you know maybe only a few days to read them and put together a skeleton and then you've got to stand up in front of a real judge and uh, make submissions and and argue your case and another thing that I find really helped was that the others in your group also watch what you do and so you've got that extra audience which can be nerve-wracking but I think the ability to to do it and to get to the end of it successfully gives you that confidence um, that you need in order to progress into second six. And ultimately, how difficult was it for you to balance your work workload from chambers and the training from the inn? I think it I think it was difficult. Uh, certainly, some weeks were more difficult than others, just depending on on how my diary was with my my supervisor at the time. I think. Some of the other inns do a much more intensive course over over one weekend or two weekends, perhaps. And that's just a different way of doing it. I think the way that Greys do it is a little bit more of a marathon rather than a sprint. And so you definitely have to pace yourself. And I think that's why I gave the advice looking back about pre-planning and being open and honest with your supervisor about what exactly it is you're expected to do and when will mean that you can pace yourself effectively and hopefully will reduce the extra burden that you're you're bound to feel at the time. Alana, thank you very much for joining us today and and, and giving us the inside scoop on, on pupillage. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Raising the Bar podcast. Please subscribe, rate and review. And for more information, check us out on Twitter at RaisingTheBarGI.